Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I'm the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Greg Lee. Greg is a Partner and a Managing Director and the Global Head of Transportation Banking with Goldman Sachs. Greg uh, is joining us for the purposes of our Aviation Industry Leaders Report. And I should say we're recording this in early December. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Before we get into the meat of the questions, can I ask you to tell our watchers just a little bit about your own role and Goldman Sachs' place in the aviation finance world? Um, well, first of all, Joe, thanks for inviting me to, to participate with you um, this morning. Um, Goldman has um, invested uh, a fair number of resources globally, as well as um, financial support in the, in, in, in the form of balance sheet. Um, this balance sheet has been everything from underwriting securities, both equity and debt, uh, as well as um, uh, revolving credit facilities, warehouse facilities, uh, acquisition facilities uh, for large M&A transactions. Uh, that's for airlines, for aviation, leasing companies, as well as for uh, large OEM uh, clients as well. Um, I think generally speaking, our role has been both uh, strategic capital raising, particularly during the pandemic, Joe, there was a lot of distress on balance sheets, as you know. And we ended up working on a fair number of wide ranging transaction uh, types from equity capital to frequent flyer backed securitization transactions to high yield, secure term loans, large private placements. The capital markets, I think, um, became a very, very important part of our global capital structure uh, in their aerospace supply chain. Uh, and we had an opportunity to participate in that. Well, that's great. And I think we're really interested to delve into lots of that as we could go through the conversation. Can I ask you maybe an opening, Greg? Can you talk to us a little bit about your perspectives and how the recovery has gone? So we've seen a strong bounce back, but, but it's been arguably kind of geographically focused in certain ways. Can you talk to us about how you've evolved, your view on how that recovery has progressed during 2022 and, and where you're kind of seeing kind of opportunities in the market uh, going into 23? recovery has been really interesting. Um, the top line recovery uh, that all of our airline clients have seen globally uh, has been pretty phenomenal. Uh, beyond expectation to have revenue higher uh, on lower capacity compared to 2019 just shows uh, a couple of very important trends that a lot of industry leaders have been talking about for the last decade or so, which is a trend line uh, away from buying assets with consumer discretionary capital, away from buying assets and moving into buying experiences. Uh, hopefully that's a secular versus cyclical trend. Clearly there was pent up travel demand given the nature of the pandemic, but the top line performance has been excellent. Um, I think a lot of balance sheets are weaker than they were pre-COVID, um, but it's great to know that there's a business model that works. Um, so I think the recovery has been better than expected on the airline side. If a recession is coming globally, uh, we at Goldman are not calling for a recession in the US. We are uh, forecasting a shallow but real uh, recession in Europe um, and, and, and significantly slower growth in China. So hopefully the economic headwinds there don't uh, blunt too much of what we're seeing is a very positive 
top line demand growth uh, for the airlines. And can I ask just in, in thinking of geographies, Greg, obviously your thoughts on how the Asian market, maybe parking China, but, but where the Asian market might go over the course of the next year, as you say, those recoveries, which have been really impressive uh, across uh, America and, the, and uh, Europe, just your thoughts on, on what way Asia bar China might go over the next year or so. So we've seen very strong growth ex-China. Clearly all eyes, Joe, are on when does China reopen? Uh, our research team at Goldman thinks there's a me meaningful probability uh, that that happens sometime, you know, middle of next year. So hopefully that's Q2 versus Q3, but a pretty meaningful probability that that does happen. If China does reopen, and of course there's a spectrum of what that could mean in terms of travel, in terms of work regulations, in terms of um, cross-border movement. Uh, for our sector, that could be huge. Um, so even the big airline clients outside of China who are experiencing pretty significant travel demand, so much of what they do is impacted by how much travel goes into and out of China, that uh, that could be a very significant catalyst. Um, the downside, if there is a downside to a China reopening, um, is what that could mean in terms of commodity uh, price cycles. So commodities have been relatively muted. We've seen a lot of volatility in crude oil in particular, but if China reopens and there's a significant uptick in, in global crude demand, you may start to see more pressure, upward pressure on certain commodities, particularly in the energy, uh, energy area. And you mentioned kind of the, the macroeconomic environment. Can I ask you, as you're assessing it around, I to go a little bit deeper on the points you made there on, on, on US and Europe, you know, a lot of uncertainty, macroeconomic piece and, and geopolitically, as you're sizing up where we are now versus 12 months ago, just how much more uncertainty is there? Well, it's really hard to model in our forecast geopolitical shock risk. Um, so definitely acknowledge the geopolitical shock risk as we've seen can be a very significant uh, factor. Um, the main action moving geographically in the Europe um, is of course energy pricing and energy inflation. Huge impact on consumer spending, <clears throat> huge impact on government deficits, huge impact on fiscal policy. Um, the main action in the Americas has to do with labor with uh, wage inflation, in particular driving inflation. So it's idiosyncratic, I think, a bit, Joe, from region to region. Um, but diving deeper from a macro perspective, the things that could happen in the U.S., which would tip us into a recession, could be um, worse than expected uh, inflation, uh, which then requires uh, a stronger hawkish uh, stance from the Federal Reserve, higher rates. Right now we're calling for the short end of the curve to be as high as five, five and a quarter percent, which is quite high. Um, hopefully uh, inflation is, uh, is, is more moderate uh, for Q4 this year and Q1, which would then take pressure off of the need to be hawkish on rates. But you know, it's, it's hard to know how that's gonna play out. So I think there's some downside risk specifically around um, the, the labor market and wage inflation in the US and, and, and Europe. A cold winter could be terrible for a lot of different reasons. Economically, from a macro perspective, high energy prices you know, have been the single biggest factor, uh, we would say, in terms of 
our current forecast of tipping Europe into um, a meaningful but shallow recession for 23. And maybe to delve into that interest rate point, as you say, we, we knew rate rises were coming. I'd say generally, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from the Goldman outlook, but, but it seems the pace at which they came, you know, from the middle of the year onwards, were probably a little bit surprising to people. And, and it seems as if that volatility it is causing some challenges in the market. Can you talk to us a little bit on, you mentioned your outlook on the interest rate perspective, but what the rate environment has done vis-a-vis -vis kind of larger transactions. Um, if you could talk to us a little bit of what you're seeing on that in relation to the aviation finance space. Yeah, so rates rising, um, and then more importantly, the shape of the curve, Joe, inverting. So rates rising very quickly, and of course, um, one thing that a lot of our colleagues in our macroeconomic forecasting area are focused on is the shape of that curve. So the short end, I, I said earlier, 5% plus, uh, will the long end um, continue to be inverted where the 10 year is you know, around 4% low fours or will that rise as well? <clears throat> Actually, an inverted curve is a relatively negative uh, signal um, in terms of the demand for capital. Um, so we'll, we'll We'll watch that part very carefully. In terms of our sector, what's interesting is the perennial debate around the correlation between lease rate factors and interest rates. So of course, interest rates and cost of debt is a huge component into how a lease should be priced. And it will take some time before lease rate factors, which are you know, seven, 10-year instruments, um, will catch up to where the interest rates on the debt side are. Um, some leasing companies will be able to handle that based on their capital structure and on hopefully what is a stacked maturity schedule over a five to seven year period. So in any given year, one seventh of their debt stack has to be refinanced in any given quarter, one twenty eighth. So that would be a good fact pattern, good capital allocation, good capital liability management strategy. Uh, of course, the problem is our leasing company clients who have too much debt coming due at once with long-term rates, if they're not hedged appropriately, they could get caught where the ROEs on these lease rates, uh, implied by the lease rates, are not um, generating sufficient return for their shareholders. Um, we do think that lease rates will rise. It'll take some time for them to rise. Um, and at some point, there will be some equilibrium between how lease rates and interest rates are faring. In terms of the debt markets, so uh, 12 months ago, the best leasing companies were able to raise five-year senior unsecured debt, you know, with a two percent, two and a half percent, all-in interest rate. Um, a month ago, that number was probably seven and a half percent. Recently, uh, some clients have been able to access the capital markets investment-grade senior unsecured debt uh, in the low sixes. So that's a good sign. But low sixes is obviously a lot higher than the two, two and a half percent that the same leasing companies were looking at about a year ago. Airlines as well have been able to tap the bank market, which has been less elastic in terms of their pricing and still able to get significant amounts of unsecured debt from banks at decent levels. So kind of spreads of 200 basis points or lower whereas uh, the capital markets would have been 100, 150, sometimes 200 basis points wide of where those levels are. 
and in your thoughts, focusing on the lessors for a moment around the whether or not so, so that rate rise is reflective of the wider market. We've seen clearly a maturing of aviation finance, which allowed it to access, you say, those very low rates. And a lot of those IG rated lessors have smartly filled their boots in 21. So we've seen some activity in 22, but not a lot. We'll clearly see more in 23. Do you think the premium they'll pay, or premium is probably the wrong term, but the additional interest that they're paying is just reflective of the market? Do you do you think there's any risk that aviation finance is getting penalized in any way in relation to kind of the global uncertainty more so than other sectors? It's a great question. Um, for most of the last 30 years, aircraft leasing and airlines traded wider from a debt perspective than the indices in which they sat. Uh, I would say that in the three to five years going into 2020 and peaking really in 2019, it was interesting to see, you know, for example, investment grade leasing companies um, starting to trade at levels which were much closer to say a triple B bond index. Um, and in fact, able to access the capital markets at levels which are better than what the bank markets would have provided. Um, in general, our sector had been a sector that fed mostly on relationship bank lending um, but that really started to change, I would say, in the early to mid 2010s, uh, cresting into 2020. Now we're seeing a reversion a little bit to the period of time where the bank markets were more efficient. The capital markets said, oh, this is a pretty volatile, scary, cyclical area. Therefore, there should be a risk premium in addition to the fundamental risk of the sector. On the equity side, you can see the same thing. So the inverse of the debt spread comment on the equity side is the risk premium the equity markets are ascribing to our sector in the form of a lower valuation multiple. And you can see that in the airline sector, how they trade, not so much in price equity or PE, but more on an enterprise value to cash flow or EV to EBITDA. Uh, we'll add EBITDA R for rent to complete the capital structure for an airline. But in general, the airline multiples have traded lower than other comparable uh, earnings, growth, ROE, ROIC businesses in a larger corporate bond or corporate equity index. So I do think that's a good point, Joe. I do think that our sector is being penalized a bit um, based on its severe um, crisis uh, history recently of pandemic and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That, that, that probably feeds in, Greg, to, to where we sit from an ABS perspective. So if we think about a market that was very hot pre-pandemic and probably came back quicker, albeit you know not tradable e-note structures, but, but structures where we saw an awful lot of ABS issuances in 21, a lot in the pipe early this year, Russia hits, they stall. We're seeing a little bit more activity in that market at the moment. You guys know it well. Can you talk to me a little bit about your perspective on, on aircraft leasing, ABS, where it goes from here? And again, probably threading those points you made there versus maybe the wider ABS market, which has its own challenges as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because when we think about the capital markets, um, the most liquid part of the capital markets would be you know, investment grade, senior unsecured, non-amortizing bullet securities or bonds, um, non-call life or make whole. Um, you go from there 
uh, and, and maybe look at you know senior secured term loans, which are widely distributed. Um, they're in the form of loans, but really sold to institutional investors like CLOs. Uh, a little bit of amortization, a lot more structure, uh, typically secured. Uh, below that, you would look at things like U.S. private placements. So a number of leasing companies and airlines have done U.S. private placements, which are usually rated, um, uh, secured or unsecured, and placed with insurance companies. And then I would say equal to that in terms of liquidity, um, but maybe more volatile um, would be the ABS markets, which we just touched on. And the ABS markets can be very hot or cold. In 2012 and 2013 and 2014, the ABS markets for aviation opened for the first time since the 2006-2007 timeframe. And getting those deals done was getting uh, was was like a private placement because there weren't that many investors, and issuers had to spend a lot of time on a long roadshow to explain the fundamentals of the sector, but also go through the complexities of the modeling, um, the modeling of how a bond should react. The biggest issue with amortization in an ABS deal is soft versus hard amortization. So soft amortization is amortization that depends on performance, where cash flows go through a prescribed waterfall, and the amount that's repaid in any particular quarter depends very much on the cash flows that have come in and various tests. Uh, it makes a lot of sense in a stronger market. In a difficult market like now, we're hearing a lot of the investors who have cared about aircraft ABS saying, gee, I don't like the fact that the amortization has been soft. The structural uh, complexities of an ABS deal rely on for their ratings uh, levels, the concept that the interest is rated on a timely basis, but the principal, the repayment principal is rated on an ultimate basis over 25 year legal maturity typically. That means soft amortization will eventually pay off over a 25-year period, but in an expected basis, many investors bought these ABS securities saying, I think that this is actually a five to six year to seven year piece of paper because the expected amortizations can be more uh, quick, plus the, the balance by the end of five, six, or seven will be so low that issuer will be highly incented and able to, because the LTV will be so low, refinance the security. We think right now many investors are saying, look, this is, there's been too many shock events. What is it about your sector that makes it so uh, levered to geopolitical shock events, to your question earlier? Um, that's hard to forecast for macro purposes. But in our world, maybe it's hard not to forecast that something's going to happen. Um, and so hard amortization is going to become the structural um, battleground with, with investors for the next generation. And we do believe at, at Goldman, we do believe that there will be a place for non-recourse debt. And we do believe that there are investors who will uh, participate in that market if they get the right uh, risk premium for it. And then importantly, as I just mentioned, in the context of hard or soft amortization, the right structural protections. Yeah, because we, we, we saw some structural change post-COVID, but, but I, you know, I'd say colloquially you'd hear that maybe that's more on the edges it sounds as if greg you're saying we need a bit more fundamental structural change to kind of attract that larger investor pool back to abs is that a fair summation yeah i think that's a good way to put it joe i, I do think um 
having done this for a number of years now, that the ABS market, like a lot of the other parts of aircraft finance, including bank debt, double ETCs, um, secured term loans, uh, the various forms of frequent flyer or loyalty financings, that the structures have changed and evolved over time. And they've done so for two reasons. One, um, the growing nature of the institutional investor base around the world, the different requirements and the different needs that the investor base has. But then of course, importantly, they've changed over time as well because the airlines have changed. A lot more consolidation. Uh, leasing companies were not a big issue in the capital markets, as you know, 10 years ago. The number of leasing companies with ratings today versus 10 years ago is significantly higher. Um, and the capital needs are higher. Boeing and Airbus 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have had forecasts, hockey stick forecasts in terms of the, the amount of aircraft finance needed to support the global capex. And uh, until 2020, uh, we'd say by and large, those forecasts were not only accurate, they might have actually understated the amount of aircraft deliveries and capex. So the market is just much, much bigger. And I think the market being so much bigger means that the capital markets need to be a part of the solution going forward. The market's too big simply for the bank market to support. And, and in that wider market, one theme we've seen emerge is the kind of alternative lender class, um, often private equity backed. Can I get your thoughts on the importance of that market and, and where you see it going? Yeah, I, I think it's a um, really, really important market. And the reason why it's an important market is because the unintended consequence of bank regulation so um, regulators uh, in Europe and, and, and the, in the Americas in particular, but not just in those two big regions, have been very focused on keeping the bank market safe. And so the regulators have the right intention to protect the banks from undue risk. And over time, what that has meant has been less and less tolerance for lending to certain sectors and less tolerance for lending to certain asset classes perhaps within those sectors. And that has meant that the bank markets have been a smaller and smaller part for the global aviation sector. Now, if you're a very uh, strong top tier credit, um, and particularly if there's a strong relationship, I think uh, banks uh, can be used for a significant part of your financing. Although the bank market's not a regenerating market. The amount of capacity that you can get from the bank market is relatively fixed. And once you tap it, it'll take some time before it can regenerate. Whereas the bond markets are a much deeper regenerating source of capital. Um, I, th I think that the alternative lender space is an attempt to bridge that world between the bond markets and the traditional bank market. And we've seen that in, in some situations recently where uh, the bond markets shut down traditional investors in the bond market weren't able to buy a certain security and where the bank markets weren't able to do something that was in the capital markets. Traditional lenders had no place in a transaction like that. We saw alternative lenders, PE-backed private credit funds, stepping up and being able to do very significant size, getting very attractive yield for their efforts, um, but filling an important role. So there's a number of those funds, as you know, Joe, that have been set up over the last several years, chasing not just aviation, but significant opportunities um, ac across the whole corporate borrower spectrum. Yeah. 
Agreed. I think it's I think it's a theme we will likely see grow and continue. And um, we we talked a little bit to the investor base, Greg, and, and how it has you know expanded clearly over the last decade, two decades, uh, exponentially, nearly. Can I ask you, post COVID, and particularly you know in the last twelve months, have you seen any themes on the nature of the types of investors? So you know we've seen U.S. private equity always around, but maybe more so. Potentially, we're talking about a Chinese retrenchment. Is Japan still interested? Your thoughts around the investor pool, and are we seeing anything thematically interesting in that base? So maybe we'll uh, compartmentalize a bit um, between equity and debt, um, and then a, uh, equity and debt for airlines versus leasing companies. So airlines um, on the equity side uh, have seen um, pretty significant retrenchment of equity investors from what we at Goldman would call the long only investor base. So investors who theoretically are uh, investing for the long haul <clears throat> aren't shorting or hedging positions. Um, in general, those investors uh, were pretty significant parts of the shareholder registry for a lot of the blue chip airlines going into 2020. Um, a lot of them have uh, stopped investing in the sector, or at least putting their investment plans in the sector on pause or on hold. And most of the investors who have been supporting the airline sector, just given how volatile it has been, have been really hedge fund investors. Um, that we think changes once we've seen a couple of quarters, and that might be as early as next year, of stability. As I said earlier, the top line revenue performance has been excellent. Uh, airlines are showing globally, not just in America and Europe, but globally, very strong uh, margin performance because they've been able to yield up, charge more for their um, for their fares to cover things like inflationary, um, highly inflationary costs uh, like, like, like wages, labor, and, and fuel. Um, so we think long-only investors come back. Uh, on the debt side, that's a super deep market and both high-yield and investment-grade investors uh, we we have seen not uh, really leave or change very much their perspective of the sector. Um, now, rates are higher and issuers have paused on issuing in the market um, more because they don't need to. They've raised so much in 2020, 2021, early part of 2022. And, you know, what might have been a three or four uh, percent secured piece of paper, you know, Q1 this year, is looking like seven, eight, nine percent uh, today, and so investors are there. So the difference, I think, on the equity and debt side, I'd say on the airline side, is the nature of the investors, the appetite, which is risk-oriented, on the equity side, has changed. On the debt side, by ratings category and by structure category, we think it's more of a. This is for airlines, uh, more of a um, question on the demand by issuers to raise money at that level, which is dampened supply, not investor appetite. On the leasing company side, um, the reference to equity investors on the leasing company side, because there's only a couple of a handful of public, uh, public listed uh, leasing companies, is probably more interesting to explore the pockets of private capital that have invested in structured transactions. So investors in Asia have invested, as you know, in, in wide body structures to give them some exposure to hopefully uh, 
strong rent cash flow streams and hopefully some strong residual performance. Um, that is a very difficult market to resurrect once there's been a couple of defaults and a couple of uh, significant losses, which there have been. So the private placement market and tapping that kind of capital seems like it might be in hold for a while. I'm talking specifically about Asian investors who've invested in bespoke private placement transaction opportunities where they're you know, buying what they are hoping is a you know, mid-teens return based on rent and some residual for a wide body. Um, the Jalco market, very, very important market that had grown significantly going into 2020, um, was damaged during COVID, but we're seeing signs that it's coming back. It's coming back for very specific high quality names, but going into COVID, it was going into uh, more difficult wide bodies. It was going to more difficult names. I think some of that hasn't turned out so well. So the Jalco equity market, I think did, um, uh, did suffer significantly during COVID, but we are seeing signs that it's coming back now. The debt markets, I think, um, as I said before, the bank markets, they're a smaller size than they would have been 10 years ago and mostly focus on the better names and credits. And maybe looking particularly at the leasing market, Greg, we've seen the 50% threshold breached. The long-term trend line has, has only been upwards and, and COVID's probably given a, you know, an accelerated bounce to a degree. Your thoughts on whether that trend continues and how high that percentage might go to. You spoke about the airlines challenge balance sheets. You talk to participants in the sector and since pandemic has strengthened relationships, not universally, but to a significant degree between lessors and airlines. Your thoughts on where that longer term trend might continue from an ownership perspective? I think it's difficult to forecast, Joe, because we observed that one of the reasons why leasing grew so much was because so much capital was coming into the leasing world going into 2020. And that lease rates, in fact, were coming down from 2016 to 2019, not really because of underlying interest rates, but just because supply demand from a capital perspective. There's so much capital coming in. This was alternative investors uh, in the form of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds who are looking for a non-correlated infrastructure-like return. It was in the form of Asian capital, Chinese bank capital in particular, but not just Chinese bank capital, Asian capital coming in, looking for dollar-denominated you know, inflation correlation. Um, so a lot of capital coming in. The non-recourse debt markets were so strong going into 2020 that it enabled and facilitated um, the formation of uh, capital coming in that didn't require um, an investment-grade balance sheet. We think right now, a lot of that capital formation is reversing course. So we think that in 23 and 24, you'll see less new investors coming into the sector. Um, when the 10-year treasury is at 4% plus, and you can buy AAA mortgages in the bond market at 6%, let's say, takes a that's an unlevered 6%, takes a lot of rationale of why you would want to do an alternative asset class like aviation away. So we think capital reverses course instead of coming into the sector, which it was pre-COVID, we think net, it, 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 the capital flows will come down a lot. What's gonna happen? Lease rates, we think, um, probably go up to some degree, not just because of higher rates, but because less capital competition coming in, that makes leasing 
less attractive. One of the reasons why leasing was so attractive was pretty good airlines who are not investment grade, but considered tier one from leasing company perspective could get very, very attractive lease rates, uh, five, you know, 50, 50, 60 basis point lease rate factors. We think that going forward is probably going to be less available. So we think that is a headwind for leasing to kind of continue to grow its market share, which might be a good thing for the existing leasing industry because then lease rates will probably be higher. Hopefully the return invested capital will be higher. Um, on the other hand, uh, this is why it's kind of hard to predict. I think a lot of airlines looked at leasing during COVID and said, boy, that's a pretty flexible piece of capital. And I'm not sure leasing companies appreciated that. But what did happen with very, very few exceptions was airlines were able to defer rent, renegotiate rent, even out of bankruptcy and certainly in bankruptcy as well and reduce their costs. And very few uh, uh, situations devolved to the point where lessors took their aircraft back. So I think the lesson learned from a lot of airline treasurers was, you know, lease versus buy is going to th throw off whatever math it does. And interest rates and tax, my tax position is going to influence that lease versus buy. But from a flexibility perspective, I can raise more than my actual purchase price from buying an Airbus. I can capitalize over seven to 10 year period, um, uh, the cost of this, this, this asset. And if something really bad uh, happens, I can generally speak and expect to go back to the leasing companies, not lose my aircraft, but um, defer my rental obligations. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting stuff, right? Particularly around if you say that, you know, attractiveness from a capital perspective kind of decreases a little, um, probably points to two areas to get your thoughts on. One, just the scale, therefore, becoming more important. Scale is always important, every sector, particularly leasing, but the scale even more important than ever before. If you're not an IG-rated lessor that has the availability of, of accessing all the lines of, of debt and equity we've talked about, so has it increased in importance in this environment? And a, a corollary to that then, will we see or are we likely to see more M&A because, you know, 100 aircraft, 150, 200 aircraft platform just, just mightn't cut the mustard. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great observation. I think scale is important because non-recourse financing is more expensive and less available. Um, arguably, scale is important as well for other reasons. For example, airlines are consolidating, getting bigger themselves. Getting access to order books is harder and harder given how much the supply chain has reduced the delivery expectations for the next couple of years. So scale is important for those operating reasons, but for sure from a liability management perspective, Joe, you know, having access to the senior unsecured investment grade bond markets um, is extremely valuable. And we do think therefore that one leasing companies will want to get bigger to get into that scale. And so there will be an increased appetite to buy assets, but equally there's going to be, a recognition by some leasing companies, gee, it's really hard to get to scale. My funding costs have gone up a lot, or maybe my reliance on non-recourse financing um, has meant that I now have very little choice about financing myself. Um, and so you may see a bunch of leasing companies decide, this is too hard, I'm gonna sell. So from an M&A perspective, 
we see more buyers from a strategic perspective, not more buyers from a new capital perspective, which is what we would have said in the big M&A run up pre-COVID, where a lot of investors were looking for new platforms. We don't see as much of that. We think it's existing strategics, probably the mid-sized guys who want to get bigger. We see more sellers who are going to say, gee, this is, this is too hard. My funding cost is too high. <clears throat> Having said that, more buyers, more sellers, that should lead to a more robust M&A market. I think the volatility of the discount rate, the volatility of the interest rates used to determine valuation, whether it's the debt side or a, a DCF on terminal value on the equity side, that volatility, you know, we think is a significant headwind um, and reduces the probability of transactions actually getting from you know, the bid and the offer and closing to an agreed transaction and then getting to a, 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 a final transaction uh, close. So more attempts, I think, but maybe a lower batting average to use a baseball parlance. Yeah, no, fine. Irish guy, but I get it. Um, and uh, to ask Greg, maybe just shift gears slightly. Um, the focus on ESG, particularly the E from an aviation perspective is obviously hugely important. Are we, are we at the moment seeing ESG issues, you know, actually constrain other airlines or lessors from a debt or an equity perspective? And, and if not, how soon do you think they'll have a material impact for both those players? We are spending a lot of time with the OEMs and the airlines on trying to help think through a couple of different um, somewhat compartmentalized categories of effort um, on ESG and climate in particular. So one effort, which is the low hanging fruit, but it's very frustrating because of the regulatory hurdles involved has to do with air traffic control. The best way to reduce carbon footprint quickly is to increase the efficiency of air traffic control so that going from A to B was really going A to B as opposed to going to A to D to E to B. Um, so that, that's something that most airline executives and airline OEMs would agree is the fastest low-hanging fruit from a practical perspective. It doesn't require science, but it requires current regulation uh, to be adjusted and to be restructured. So that might be even harder than requiring a big scientific breakthrough. So that's one area. A second area, uh, and I'm focusing really on airlines and OEMs, because I think that leasing companies do play a role in... Um, the furthering of an ESG agenda, but it's a little bit more of a derivative role as opposed to a primary role. So one is air traffic control, two is obviously the nature of, um, of the fuel that can be used for existing technology, so sustainable aviation fuel. The problem there has been feedstock, as well as inconsistent government messaging around what they're willing to do is to subsidize the feedstock um, and the delivery um, of SAF. So there's not enough to distillate uh, now, um, even for jet fuel, which is why the crack spread for jet fuel versus crude has gone so high. The question is how do you create more feedstock in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't hurt agriculture too much? Um, you know, and, and so there's a lot of effort uh, into these SAF SAF initiatives. Um, um, a third broad area is in the nature of propulsion itself. Um, and, and can you actually change the engines and the technology associated with propulsion? 
So not just using SAF for existing propulsion, but is there a new kind of propulsion? And what does that require in terms of new forms of energy, whether it's electric or hydrogen? Um, and there's, so there's a lot of effort in those three areas. I think the airlines um, are pushing the OEMs and the OEMs are trying to look for signs from the government for what they can do. The energy suppliers, um, it's notable that the big energy suppliers, the big Exxons and Chevrons, uh, and the NOCs, the national oil companies in the Middle East, uh, haven't really um, been able to have a huge impact on SAF yet. Um, again, I think they're, they're, they're waiting for the governments around the world to establish more of a, a defined uh, policy that they can then base forecasts and modeling on. Um, I think the leasing companies play an important role because they're a provider of capital. So what can they do as a provider of capital to incent and to reward uh, different kinds of carbon behavior? And I think uh, leasing companies are trying to figure out ways to do that, whether it's scope three emissions, uh, uh, carbon credits, whether it's uh, their own form of financing where we've seen many corporates around the world borrow money where the interest rate is tied to performance on some specific carbon emissions or carbon intensity KPI. So we can we see that uh, as a very possible um, uh, development in 23 and 24 as well. But I think the leasing companies, by definition, have to play more of a derivative uh, secondary role compared to the OEMs, the airlines, and then the um, energy suppliers. But is it, is it more, as you're chatting that through, Greg, more, more of a coming thing from, a, if I call it a, an input perspective at the moment, either on rates or equity, but it's there. It's just a question of when it either shrinks your capital pool or your, or your debt provider pool, and, and by extension, just your, your cost of finance. I do think so. I th you know, there, there's a number of initiatives, a, large, a lot of large banks, including Goldman Sachs and a lot of our peers um, have agreed to work together uh, to set up regimes where we can measure the carbon intensity of our client base and provide capital on some basis, which is correlated to those sectors and how they have performed according to their own KPIs. Broad brushstroke, what does that mean? It means a lot of large banks get together and say, gee, this industry, let's pretend it's the oil and gas, or maybe it's the auto industry, or maybe it's the power industry, uh, have said from now to 2030, we're going to reduce our carbon intensity from X to Y. And if you do it from X to Y, that's good. If you can't go from X to Y, then we as the huge banking market will reduce the amount of lending we'll do to you as a sector. So that broad brushstroke is kind of the mission statement for organizations like that. Um, we'll see how the actual execution plays out. Um, but I do think that there's going to be some cap cost of capital, to your point, Joe, some cost of capital impact associated with less capital being able to provide financing to a sector if the sector has a method of KPIs. No, I think you're right. That's spot on and logical as to where it goes next. Greg, can I, can I just ask you superb insights? Just in closing, as you look out into 23, um, it seems like there's more uncertainty than maybe we've ever had, but what are your optimism levels like? So as you think about the next kind of 12 months from an aviation perspective, what are your optimism levels like? Um, so we, we actually feel pretty um, bullish about the airline sector. Um, 
because we're seeing strong demand. Um, consumers are spending more for trips. Trips may be more important. Um, corporate travel might be mixed, but more people are spending uh, money for, for, for trips uh, on airlines. And so we feel pretty good about the airline business model. Airlines have you know, more debt than they did before. And so there's some capital structure problems they're gonna have to work through. But if you're gonna run a business and you're gonna bank a business as a client, the first thing you care about is, is there a business model? Are there, is there passenger demand? And so I think it's gotta be very, very reassuring to the boards of all, all of our airline clients that there's strong customer demand. So we feel pretty bullish about the airlines. Now there's some tailwinds, uh, headwinds, excuse me, associated with their balance sheets, large capex, much higher funding costs, inflationary pressures on the wage side and volatility of fuel. Those are always the case really with, with this sector, but it's great to see that um, passenger demand is strong. Um, OEMs, very, very difficult story. Supply chain problems, uh, are well known and well documented. So what's gonna happen in the next couple of years? It feels like things can only get better in terms of delivery. Um, you know, 787 coming back and being delivered, very, very important for Boeing. Hopefully things get started out on the engine side. Um, so that, that feels like a work in progress on the leasing company side. Um, less capital coming in is a positive thing for the existing leasing companies. We think lease rates come up. We think supply chain problems, which is not great for the OEMs, is good for the leasing sector. Um, the, the, so we're relatively um, bullish, at least medium term and longer term for leasing companies. Short term, higher interest rates, uh, higher operating costs, obviously is, is challenging to your point earlier. I think scales can be very important but we do think that leasing is going to show itself to be a very attractive area to deploy capital over the medium and long term because of the supply chain issues and because of the, so less aircraft um, and, and, and also because of um, considerations around capital uh, formation reversing itself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that as mostly optimistic. <laughs> and on that mostly yeah. optimistic note, um, I'd like to thank you for your excellent insights today, Greg, and wish you, uh, on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, a very successful 2023. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it.